Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Epiphany in Lent, we are back in the Gospel of Luke, where we see God revealed in Jesus. As is common for Luke, what we see is the kingdom coming to all, but maybe most often to the unexpected. We'll see Jesus challenge his disciples, the rich young ruler and the proud religious leader, but commend a persistent widow, insist that the children come to him, and reveal that a blind beggar can see him for who he is even better than his own disciples. Finally, we will make our way with Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd around him as he enters Jerusalem on Holy Week long ago. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless. Lord, we are uh, sometimes uh, overcome with familiarity with your word, at least some of us who have lived a a life uh, in the church. Um, some, some passages just feel like old hat and, um, and yet there, then there are others, Lord, that make us scratch our heads and wonder what's going on. And, and we always want to hear Lord, uh, from you, uh, no matter what it is, Lord, we've come here, probably some of us being dragged along uh, by parents or friends. Uh, some of us just wondering if, if this whole church thing and this God thing might be true. And, um. And some of us, out of habit, healthy habit and maybe bad habits, who knows? God, I pray that today, today even a passage like this would speak. And that we would be your servants who listen and who hear and who come to you in the hearing. Lord, bless now uh, the preaching of your word. May the words in my mouth, the meditations and the thoughts, uh, the contemplations that come up in our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so if you are taking the road that leads out from Jericho and you're going west up uh, to Jerusalem, Eventually, there will be a road that turns off to your left that will be going down south. And um, if you were to travel that road about the same distance as, it you, as if you would have been going, continuing up to Jerusalem, if you had traveled that road down south to your left, um, you would eventually get to the summer palace of King Herod. Um, there at his summer palace, he, he built this palace in commemoration of a war that he won. And it was sort of his getaway, and it was sort of lavish. There was actually a tower uh, that was seven stories high. And, and you might know that seven stories rarely existed in the world up until the development of steel I-beams that largely happened here in Pennsylvania with the you know, ability to build much, much taller buildings. But there, that was, there was that tower and there was a great theater. There was a theater that sat about 400 people so that Herod could have his family and his croonies, his buddies, some people that worked for him over just to watch a movie. 
It wasn't probably not a movie. But, you know, he had a theater so he could entertain folk. And he had offices there at his summer palace so that uh, officers could come and they could do the work. And he could kind of look out on the, uh, uh, from the distance because it was sat up on a big hilltop. It still does today. You can go see the ruins. Um, you can, he could sit out and look down across the valleys towards Jerusalem. Jesus, you likely might remember, in the last two sections that we've looked at, has been in Jericho. He's, he's had two divine appointments, you might remember. Um, seeking and saving the lost. Uh, he gave sight to the blind beggar there in Jericho. And last week we looked at how he, he saved this rich tax collector, this chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. So he had these divine appointments there in Jericho. But now what we read is that he's, uh, verse 11 there, he was near to Jerusalem. And so the same crowd probably that had followed him through Jericho and that had seen him heal the blind beggar and had actually objected to him, you know, going over to Zacchaeus' house. They're like, don't he, don't they know, doesn't he know that he's a sinner? You know, that crowd, they're following him and they're going with him. They're making their way up to Jerusalem because they're all going to celebrate the Passover. That's why they're going up there. And um, everybody in this crowd would have known that if they would have taken this left turn, they would have been able to go down to King Herod's palace. That between Jericho and Jerusalem, this thing existed down to the south. And everybody would have known the story of Herod. You may remember Herod was the king that reigned when Jesus was born. That he commanded the slaughter of the innocents around Bethlehem. And they would have also known the story of King Herod's son, Archelaus. When, when King Herod died, uh, everyone, especially Archelaus, um, thought, they assumed that Archelaus would become the regional king there of Judea. And he actually started acting like he was the king sort of immediately. But he knew, and also everybody else knew, that he just didn't get to decide that. That actually that authority was in someone else. That, that, that somebody else had to say, yes, Archelaus, you're the king of this area. You get to rule. And that that person was the emperor, Julius or Caesar Augustus, who lived way over in Rome. So here's what happened. Archelaus makes the long journey over to Rome, fully expecting that this would just kind of be a, a no-nonsense, you know, dutiful thing. He's going to go see Caesar, and Caesar's going to say, hey, yeah, this region, you get to rule over. Your dad did it. Now it's on you. What he found when he got to Rome was that there were protests. There were two two kind of major protests. One was from his own family. There were other people in his family that were like, no, 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 no. That throne should be mine. I should be able to do that. That always happens, you know, when there's successors. There's always that debate. That, you know, oh, you know, royal families. That's what happens. The other thing is that there was actually a delegation sent from Jerusalem. 50 leaders, delegates from Jerusalem were sent to go and meet with Caesar and to tell Caesar, we don't want this man ruling over us. He's not fit to reign. And uh, they had their reasons. Actually, here's their main reason. During a Passover feast celebration itself, the very week that we're about to enter into, you know, J Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and all that. The, during a Passover feast and a, during a Passover celebration, there was this um, uprising of sorts at the temple itself 
And um, Archelaus ordered his soldiers to put the uprising to rest. And when he did so, those soldiers killed 3,000 worshipers in Jerusalem. This is not long before the events of Jesus. Okay, so, so this whole trip to Rome that Archelaus was taking and that he thought was just sort of some quick, easy thing became actually a much more prolonged trip. And actually, even when Caesar did decide that Archelaus would be given the opportunity to reign, he actually initially wasn't given the, uh, the title of king. He had to prove it, that he was fit to reign. And then what's important that you know is that when he came back, what did he do to that, those 50 delegates? They went from Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah, he showed them who's boss, right? Okay. All of that took a lot, lot longer than expected. Now, there's a lot more interesting things that I could share with you about history of Herod and Archelaus. And you guys would all probably like glaze over and go, what? why are we getting a history lesson here? Um, but what I'm telling you is that these events would have been really well known to anybody who was making their way in pilgrimage up to Jerusalem at the Passover and specifically on the road between Jer Jericho and Jerusalem. And that's exactly what's happening with Jesus and this whole crowd around him. They're going from Jericho up to Jerusalem and they're literally passing the road that would remind them of Herod and his successor and what happened. And this is how our parable begins. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus. And said to them, engage in, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Odd story in such a place. So there's two main characters in this parable, right? There's this king, uh, this uh, soon-to-be king, this person who reigns and rules, and there are the servants. And, and all I want us to do is basically consider these two main characters. Um, but what I really want you to see is this thing that Jesus has told us a few times. Luke's told us through Jesus' actions and through his parables a few times in these couple chapters. And that's this, that it's risky business following Jesus. And yet it's completely worth it. Um, keep in mind, right, Jesus had, had just engaged with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus had just said that he's going to give up half of everything he owns to the poor, and he's going to pay back fourfold when he defrauded anyone, which is basically him saying, like, I'm giving up my entire life. Certainly, I'm giving up all my wealth. And then just in the previous chapter, we saw the rich young ruler who had it all going, and he says it's not worth giving up this life to follow Jesus. All right, so first I want us to consider this king and specifically the king's reign. I want you to think about this, how, again, verse 12 tells us, this nobleman went to this far country to receive for himself the kingdom and then return. But he has power then, and he calls his servants to himself, and he gives them each a, a minus, and he says, engage in business. And um, the first thing I want you to see is simply that the king leaves, which is a sort of an odd first sub-point. Um, and we should acknowledge that these sort of, these parallels with Archelaus are uncanny in a way, aren't they? 
It's like Jesus is just telling them the history that they all know. Um, but he's not talking about Archelaus. He's not talking about Archelaus. He's talking about himself. And one of the things that we see in Luke is that remarkably, Jesus never has a problem telling stories where the bad guy turns out to be the God figure. Uh, we looked at a parable not long ago, that, actually this, this epiphany season, where Jesus does that. But he does that quite a bit. God, the God figure becomes the one that everybody would go, what's going on there? I mean, you can think, of course, of the father and the prodigal of the parable, the, the the, sorry, the parable of the prodigal son. God's the one who everybody else would laugh at and say, what's he doing? Jesus here is willing to, in that context, say there's a similarity here. He doesn't mind being compared to the crazy folk. Jesus, though, here he's saying, I'm about to go off into a far country. And what he's about to do, actually, most immediately, he's about to go to death. And, and, and a death that nobody would look upon favorably. He's about to go through death and through an empty tomb. And he's about to ascend to heaven to sit and to reign at the right hand of the Father. To receive his crown in heaven. The fact is, though that pretty much nobody wanted to have a king that would die on a cross. That is, of course, why, why the movement of the Passover week happens. From Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him. The fact is that we don't want a king who dies. And nearly everybody wanted him to act more swiftly than he did. Um, Luke tells us here in verse 11... That he told this parable because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to, to appear immediately. Um, and think about that again. Here's this crowd. They had just made their way through Jericho, which I meant to mention last week was known as the city of palms. There were palm groves and actually a palm forest outside and surrounding Jericho. And so they would have literally been grabbing the palms there in Jericho to make their way up to Jerusalem to lay them down at this Jesus' feet and to declare him the king. And they wanted him to act immediately. And they sort of knew that he had the power to do so. I mean, what they just seen is him heal the blind. Um, what they just seen is him do social uh, reversals that nobody else could do. This chief ta tax collector gives up his wealth. Nobody would have imagined that. They'd no doubt seen some of them, or at least all of them, had heard how he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They had heard him speak the authority of the forgiveness of sins. And... Um, on some level, let's just, let's just understand that all of us, if we were there, would have been like, yes, we want this kingdom to come now. And this guy seems to be able to do it. Do away with the Romans. Reign. Make it happen. Do it immediately. Um, and Jesus corrects this misconception in his leaving. I... Uh, his reign is even uh, shown by the fact that he goes the way he does go through his leaving. He leaves through death on a Roman cross. He leaves through an empty tomb. He le lead, leaves through an ascension. Think about this. These are a couple things that hang people up about Christianity. God doesn't die. What kind of power is that? What kind of God is that that would do such a thing? Rome can't win. 
And why is Jesus gone for so long? Right, we've talked about that some even recently, how easy it is to consider giving up the Christian faith because God just seems absent. Where is he? Why is he taking so long? Never mind the need for atonement of sins. Never mind the need for the nations to hear the good news of God. The gospel to do its work in the world. The leaving of God creates all kinds of problems for all kinds of people. Some of you might know that even Bible scholars, they go, why does it seem like, you know, Jesus at one time can say, I'm coming soon. And it looks like the New Testament treats it like it's coming soon. At the other time it says, I'm going to take a while. What's going on? Um, You've heard me say probably before when we've considered this, that um, when we are with our Lord, I think we're going to look back and see how these two truths are, are right. We're going to look back and think the millennia that passed are just days when we're with Jesus. But right now, it's a long time. It's a long time. Our perception will be completely changed, but it's not changed yet. Um, but what I'm suggesting to you is that we even see Jesus' reign in the way that he leaves. First, by his leaving, how he does so, and the timing that are both in his control. And yet that creates some real questions for us and possibly some real doubts about him and what he does and who he is. Um, Some of this comes in this passage, right? Some of his own citizens in this passage say, we don't want him to rule over us. And you know, the, actually the immediate context of this very holy week, this first, like, you know, this Passover, this first holy week is that some of his own disciples go, well, if this is the way you're going to leave through a cross I'll take the 30 pieces of silver. I don't think I can go there with you. Um, So the doubts that you have maybe about how Jesus acts and how he leaves and his death and his timing and all of this, they had right then too. But I also think we see uh, the king's reign, of course, through his return. So if you look down at verse 15, it says this. Uh, When he returned, uh, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And what Jesus says very clearly in this is that he will reign at his return. The return of Jesus will be a day of reckoning. It'll be a day of accountability. It's a day that says... That he reigns over that day and every preceding day. He's going to have a say over how life happened and how we engaged with life. Of course, what we all know too is that this becomes a hang up for a lot of people too, doesn't it? I mean, we're, we'll consider the, uh, the servants in a moment. Uh, but what you see is that at least one of the servants has a real problem both on, on, the, on that day when Jesus returns, when the, the king returns here. And he actually has a problem with the, inter, the time in between the king's leaving and his return. He has a problem with both of them. Um, because he doesn't like how the king will reign, right? He says, I was afraid that you were a severe man. Because I knew that. And that gets us all hung up too. 
But what I'm suggesting to you is that we see this king's reign and we see how he reigns over time. And in this passage, we see how one day he will reign perfectly and he will bring his judgment perfectly to bear on this life. We see that his leaving is not what we expect. Um, but when he does leave, he goes and he receives the kingdom. His cross is the way to his crown. But it hangs up all kinds of people that that's the way he gets his crown. His cross is the way to his crown, despite how so many people in his own time and throughout history thought that no king can get a crown that way. You don't rule by giving up your life. His delay may be long, but Jesus says that his delay, his return is certain. And when he returns, he will judge the living and the dead. I think we should all acknowledge that this comes off uh, sort of off-putting. I think it's just good to acknowledge that in some ways. That this creates actually some, some real doubts in lots of folk. Um, I would just suggest to you... Um, that if you, can't if you can't get away from the idea that Jesus is king over all things, um, sorry, let me say this again. I would suggest to you that if you can't get around the idea of Jesus as king over all things, as the true king that your heart really desires, it may very well be because of his death and his cross and because of his judgment. Those may be the things that really hang you up. But here, it's actually where we see his grace and his kindness. It's an odd paradox in the Christian life. Um, those are the real reasons why people often think they don't want to follow Jesus. Those are the things that hang us up. And here's what I'm suggesting is that Jesus himself knows that those will hang you up. That's partly why he tells this story. Jesus is aware of the very things that bring you doubts and questions. Which is to say that no question is too big for Jesus. And no doubt is beyond his sort of engagement and his control. So I wanted you to see the king's reign in this way and his leaving and his return. And I wanted to just acknowledge that these sort of leave, this leaving and this return in this passage and how they're done bring up these doubts but that Jesus still invites us into them. But next I want us to consider the uh, servants and their responsibility. All right, do we have children still in this room? I see, a, I see Nora at least. All right, Jaden. Uh, Will? Uh, have you guys ever had this happen where your, your parents, maybe they go out for a date or something and they leave and they leave you with a babysitter and they tell you when they leave, they say, I want a good report when I come home. Have you ever had that happen? I see some nods. Okay, we sometimes tell babysitters that. Well, I, want a, I want a good report. We tell the kids, but we know that we're going get to get the report from the babysitters, right? Or maybe, have you ever heard this? Um, when we leave and this babysitter's here, I still want you to make sure that your bedroom is clean before you go to bed. Have you ever heard that one? Okay, some of you, some of you haven't. All right. It's rough to live in the Rowan household. 
Uh, how about this? Before you watch a movie, I want you to help the babysitter clean and clear the table. You ever heard that one? Yeah, you've heard that one. Okay, okay. Um, so we, we, we see, you know, this leaving of the king and this return of the king. But it actually seems like the main part of this parable is, is not just about the king, but about these servants. And what do they do when the king is gone? What do they do at his return? Which is sort of to say, how do we live now? How do we live? What do we live? How do we live in this in-between time, this already not yet time? And let me suggest just a few things that come from this parable. First thing is that we live as stewards, which is to say we live as those who have something that's been entrusted to us. You know, we've been given something and we're supposed to care for it. We're supposed to act responsibly with it. So verse 13, it says this, calling uh, 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. By the way, uh, commentators say that, you know, oftentimes you might think it would be 12 because the 12 disciples, but 10 is this number of completion in the Bible. And so 10 is the idea that all people who follow Jesus are entrusted with this. And what you'll notice is there's 10 disciples and there's 10 minus. And so they've actually all been given the same thing here. It goes on and says, and when we, um, yeah, uh, engage in business until I come. And so uh, they're supposed to engage with what they've been given. And they've actually been given a lot. A minus is actually the equivalent of 100 days worth of work. This isn't a small number. He's like, hey, here, here's quite a bit. Do something with it. Um, now, something that's really interesting here is that we know from elsewhere in the Bible that God gives to his people different gifts, right? Like some of you are ears, you're good listeners. Some of you are eyeballs, you see perceptively. Some of you are hands, you've been given uh, the task of serving others really well with your hands. And you've been gifted differently. We know that very clearly from other parts in the Bible. Um, but here, everybody gets the same thing. Which means that here, the question is not giftedness, but faithfulness. It's just faithfulness to what God has given to all of us. What's clear is uh, when the king returns, have the servants put the minuses to work. In some ways, he doesn't even seem to care that much on whether they get a return at all. Uh, or sorry, sorry, how much of a return they get, but he cares deeply that they get a return, that they've just done something, anything, with what he's given them. God is entrusting us, all of us, with some things. Um, if you have been forgiven... What the Bible tells us is that you must forgive. And that, it doesn't really matter if you're a hand or an eyeball or a foot or an ear. If you've been forgiven, you must forgive. If you know the grace of God, you must extend the grace of God. If you know the good news of Jesus, you must share the good news of Jesus. Some will be required to forgive much. Some of you know that in your life. You've been required to forgive much horrible things. And some will be required to forgive not as much. 
Some will be required to extend grace in this life, and some will be uh, required to not, not extend as much. But if you've been given these things, you cannot sit idly on the side and hoard them. There's no hoarding in the kingdom of God. You are, if you are entrusted with these things, and all of you are entrusted with them if you follow Jesus, the Lord will want to know that something has come of them. Something, anything at all. Which is also to say that we're not just here, you know, we don't just live as stewards, but we also live as those who will be tested. Um, there will be temptations to think that what you've been given should be hoarded. All of us will be tempted with this. We really will be. We'll be tempted to keep things locked up and safe, to not risk doing too much, giving too much, to keep it for ourselves. And some of us, sort of like what I just said, have good reason for this. Uh, we've been hurt a great deal. Uh, we've been forgiven and it's been thrown back in our faces. We've extended grace and it's not been received. We've sought to love and we've been rejected. And so we just want to keep it all for ourselves. We don't want to love. We don't want to be vulnerable. We certainly don't want to give ourselves away. And we don't want to forgive. Those things which God gives to all of us. So you will be tested and all of us will be tested. We will all wonder if God has given us these things. And if we can really give them away. And expect that he will still care for us. That we'll get a return on any kind of investment. Is forgiveness really worth it? My guess is that if, <laughs> if you're at least 30, you've asked that question. It's, the number's probably lower than that. Is grace really something I should give when someone has done the sorts of things that have been done to me? Which made me, of course, think of C.S. Lewis's famous quote in the book, The Four Loves. He says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung. It'll be possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. You must wrap it up in a napkin like this man. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So what we see in this parable is that we, we know some of them, some of the people that have received this minus, go out into the world with great risk and give it away and extend it and see it increase. And there's this man that says, I'm going to hoard it. What God has given me cannot be given to any other. I'm going to take it and keep it for myself. So we've, we live as those who've been entrusted and then we live as those who are going to be tested or who will be tested. But we also live as those who will receive a reward. Um, I really wanted to have another T word for reward, but I couldn't find one. Um, this is an odd thing here, but you will get what you want. 
Uh, If you're faithful and little, the Lord will put you over much. If you cannot prove to be faithful with little, what he says is that even what you have will be taken. If you don't want God now, you're not going to get God then. He'll get what you want. The one who invested, who risked, who took a leap of extending what he had, he was given. He was given more. Even so much, actually, that some people protested. Why did you give that one to the guy who had ten? Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and all the other things will be added unto you. Um, think of this. Think of, again, I mentioned this at the beginning. We just saw Zacchaeus do what everybody else would have thought is so foolish and crazy. So he's going to give away half of his goods to the poor. And then he's going to uh, return fourfold what he took by defrauding others. And we just heard in the very last chapter, in chapter 18, a rich, young ruler, right? Somebody who had, who had all that he needed, who was young, had life ahead of him, who had power. He looked at Jesus and he said, you're not worth the risk. I've got to keep this stuff for myself. And I think when you put all this stuff together and this parable together, Jesus is saying, it's risky business following me. It's risky business following me. You're going to invest in things. And you're going to say, There's, that, might be a, that might have been a totally foolish thing to do. What am I doing? Forgiving again? Think of Peter asking Jesus, Jesus, do I, do I forgive somebody seven times? Which we all go, that sounds crazy. I mean, you know, once or twice, but if they keep doing it, don't keep doing it. Jesus says, 70 times seven. It's risky business following Jesus. It demands a long wait for a return on that kind of risk. And it invites us into loving our enemies, taking up our cross, Forgiving, you know, that person that harmed us yet again. Um, Jesus says that it may demand that you gouge out your eye and you cut off your hand if they keep causing you to sin. It's risky business following Jesus. It's risky business to love others. You all know that. It's risky business to love other people. It's risky business to not hold a grudge, but to open yourself up to be loved. But I think what Jesus is telling us again and again, and keep in mind that he's making his way to die on a cross to give of himself completely. He's telling us again and again that it is worth it. I mean, we sometimes look at these, look look at the risk, and we're like the rich young ruler, and we think that's too much to ask. Don't ask that much of me, Jesus. And again and again, he's saying, it's worth it. It's worth it. The risk is always worth it in the kingdom of God. In some ways, I think whether you're a Christian or not this morning, that you know that the reward really is worth the risk. Let me just just think for a second about 
what Jesus says, which initially I think kind of puts us off a little bit. Um, but I think we all know that it's true. Jesus says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We all know that if you play basketball, right, and you practice and you show up and you do the drills, you're going to get better. And we all know that the person who just doesn't, they just want to completely sit on the sidelines and not engage, they're going to get worse. I've been shooting baskets with my son. I promise you I'm worse than I was 20 years ago. I haven't engaged. We all know that if you go to the gym and you work out and you run and you keep your body fit, you're, not only actually are you healthier, but you actually gain muscle. And if you sit around and you don't, you become more and more lethargic. It works both ways. Your strength will dissipate. We know, we know, and hopefully many of you know this, that if you practice loving, if you practice forgiving others, if you practice evangelizing and telling other people about Jesus, you, you will grow in those things. They will actually become easier. And if you don't, your heart, just like C.S. Lewis told us, will become harder and harder and harder. Even what you have will be taken away. We all know these things. What I hope you know, and this is part of what Jesus is saying to us. So you always get what you want. And if you want God now, you can have him now, but you will have him even more then. If you don't want God now, you're not going to have him now and you will not have him then. You will not. Brothers and sisters, the waiting is long. That's why Jesus told this parable, right? And the cost is great. Don't let anybody fool you. All of us have to take up our crosses when we follow Jesus. The cost is always great to following Jesus. It is. But the reward is always worth it. Let me pray for us. Lord, not one of the parables that we often talk about with our friends, um, but one that speaks to the very things that hang us up a lot of times, wondering where you are and why in the world we, would we put our hope in a God who dies? Um, Lord, I pray that we would see your call in this passage to live as those who are entrusted with these gifts and who are to exercise them, even though the risk is great, as a joyful calling. I pray that we would practice the things we've all been given with one another. Forgiveness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, the fruits of the Spirit. The things that you give us, Lord, in this life, I pray that we would not be those who hoard, who lock them up, 
who engage with you simply out of fear. Lord, I pray that we would give ourselves to you now completely. That we would count the cost as we are called to do. That we'd wonder, really, is this what I'm supposed to do? But I pray that you'd move in us, that we would really see that it's worth it. That the things of this world will gather moth and dust and they will be destroyed. But when we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, all the other things will be added unto us. Lord, answer our prayers in these things. They are difficult. We need your spirit. Would we see that Jesus is worth it and lovely and beautiful beyond compare? We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.